Hi, and welcome to All Things Cozy with Matt and Jillian. We are a bi-weekly podcast about everything that is warm, soft, and comforting. This week, we're playing with the concept of cozy gaming by not only sharing the games we personally consider coziest, but also buffing our understanding of the ways game design itself can be cozy. Here to help us level up is Chris DeLeon, game developer, educator, and founder of Home Team Game Dev, a supportive community designed to help people learn the skills to make games with teams. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here. You have been a wonderful partner for the school that I work with, helping young people learn how to make games, giving them feedback on their games. You've also helped me make my first game, which was a Pong game. <laughs> yeah, maybe it resembled Pong, but that's an Atari trademark. So I think you mean like a 1970s look in. There's like a white that's paddle. Right. It's kind of tennis inspired. The paddle ball game. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you are just generally a wonderful person for walking us through both what cozy games are, but also how we can get involved with making our own. We're really excited to dive in. But before we do, we're going to check in with what's making us feel cozy this week. What's making me feel cozy this week are Winning Solutions Linen Book Games. And I have to shout out a listener to the show, Tara, who in our Facebook group shared these so it's your classic games like Shoots and Ladders and Candyland, Clue, Scrabble, Monopoly. But instead of it being your typical outside, you know, normal box that you would put on a shelf, it's actually a book. And what I really love about this and what I think is so cozy is that, you know, for me, for example, I don't have a lot of space in my apartment. I don't really have a lot of closet space. All my crap is out in the open for everyone to see. And so I've honestly stayed away from owning certain board games because I didn't really have a place to put them. So this is a really wonderful solution to have those board games available, but also feel confident you can put them on a shelf and have them display nicely. Also, I think they're more compact, right? Because you, all the boards fold up in, into the book. And you, yeah, the book kind of doesn't really have convincing page <laughs> edges, but it goes into a sleeve that even hides that. So I think this is a really cozy find. If you're kind of looking for a, even a gift for somebody who likes games, but maybe is like, oh, I don't want them out and about or... I don't have the room for them. This is a really great idea. And again, thank you, Tara, for bringing this to our attention. I love that idea. I'm in the same boat. I have all these random games. That also, I wouldn't want necessarily some people to see. Like, Kittens in a Blender. It's kind of confusing about context. <laughs> <of> the card <laughs> game. So, um, I'll definitely check these out. So you said that they're games that are they're re, they're redesigned to fit in the books or they're designed to fit the games? They're separate things? They're designed to fit into the book. Okay, so they yeah. all are kind of like a almost, I want to say like just a hardcover, like a large book. Um, and all of the boards fold into them. Most of the boards are the classic like first version of the board that, that the game was released with. They do a lot of heirloom <laughs> products, this company. So a lot of it is kind of geared towards like capturing that original vintage feeling. Nice. Jillian, what's making you feel cozy? So I want to preface this by saying that I'm 31, so I know how ridiculous this is. But uh, today I received a care package, a Valentine's Day care package from my mom. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's bound to melt your heart. Well, I really, you know, you just like really need something that you don't need. Uh, so I would never go out and buy my own chocolate or a wine glass that says wine is my Valentine, probably from oh Home God. Goods. I know it's so, <laughs> it's so mom, like wine jokes. <laughs> and I love it. It's probably the favorite thing I have in my house right now. Um, cat toys for my cats, obviously, and then a candle. And it's just a nice, unexpected thing that I hope I still get when I'm 40. <laughs> Keep it coming. Um, send out those care packages. But even if you have a friend in your life who sends you a surprise you know, it's just nice to get something that you're not expecting and normally wouldn't go and buy yourself. It's funny. There are those things that you want other people to buy you, but it would be unthinkable to buy it yourself. Yeah. There's something that feels so wrong about like walking into a Target and buying yourself like a heart box of chocolates. I, I say you got to do it. <laughs> you just got to do it. You got to. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like with some folks, you know, in the dating scene, it's like, oh, you got to date yourself first. Like, be OK. Just going to see a movie. Not right now. <laughs> granted. But I wish I had the fortitude. But I there needs to be some sort of black market like behind Target. There's just people like handing off the box of chocolates that they bought themselves to somebody else. And they can give them their box of chocolates just so that we can all feel like we got them in a way that they were meant to be given. But yeah, like the. That wine glass is, I don't know, some of the most ridiculous glassware or dishware I have is my favorite. Yeah. Like, for instance, Jillian got me the 
Roloff Farms gather coffee mugs. So I've actually been called out at work like, you know, I'm on Zoom drinking coffee and my coworkers are like, does it say gather on your mug? Like, <laughs> Yes, it does. Are you a mom? Proud of like, it. Yeah, you know what? I am. I'm part of the Amy Roloff family here. Yeah, you just kind of want those things, but it, it is so much... It's hard to get it yourself, but I totally hear you. It feels like a great gift. Yeah. So all weekend long, I'll be sipping on wine is my Valentine wine glass. <laughs> even though I have a partner of six years, but you know, uh, wine this weekend is my it's both. It's both a comforting, but also a harrowing declaration on that wine glass. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, how about you? What's making you feel cozy? Sure. So uh, I've been a longtime fan of the game Mist. Yeah, oh, originally yeah. released back in 1993 uh and like my desk mat is a big old mist desk mat i got a little mist notebook next to me uh genuinely mist fan over the years played it on several different consoles and ports and more recently i released a version of that in vr on the oculus quest yes and it's just it's such a nice thing for so many reasons uh but you know it's it's like you're not being rushed ever there's nobody coming to get you uh, essentially because it was initially authored before they could animate at that fidelity. Anyway, it's basically all empty space. It's a very kind of calming. You got some trees, you got some water, things aren't even far apart. So you don't have to walk very far. And it's just, it's, it's nice to be able to go back to the space that to me has memory hooks to when I was first using computers or, uh, when I was first getting into video games and for, a, I mean, a whole bunch of a whole generation of people missed was kind of part of what sold their family on like, we need a CD ROM drive because if we don't get that tech, we can't play Mist. And look how cool <laughs> Mist looks. And and it introduced so many people to gaming through that. And also, I've always loved it too. Partly, and you know, I'm a developer these days. Even this idea of so these these linen book games, where there's this book inside that book is a game. <laughs> Very much like a whole world of Mist. The central like notion of this intellectual property is that there's this magical script. This isn't really spoilers for a 30-year-old thing for anybody, but there's this magic script that if people write incorrectly. They're describing a world that other people can go visit. So when they're touching that linking book, when they're going to that other world, when they're visiting the other age, it's something someone wrote into existence with this cryptic language. And for me, that's always been a really nice parable for game programming, where we master this archaic, uh, bizarro way of describing things with enough detail that someone else can go there and see what we are trying to show them, explore that space on their own, at their pace, and uh, as part of that, and, and sort of just in adjacent to that, I was rereading the three missed novels again. And you, you I really are a misshead. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I really wish there was, uh, I really wish there was like uh, an audiobook version of this. I'm searching my Audible. I'm trying to find a way to use my credits for it. And I discovered on the Internet Archive, same people who brought us my favorite selection of music on the Internet, which is Attention Kmart Shoppers, <laughs> old cassettes from the 70s and 90s of Kmart stores, has the missed audiobooks from Random House that are no longer for sale. But they're great because they're professionally produced. They've got voice actors and stuff. They've got music added. And it was just nice to revisit those stories that I first probably read in 2005 or something. Uh, so all three of those just cranked through those this week as well. It's been nice. But yeah, all things missed is my answer for my cozy gaming lately. <laughs> Chris, that was too cozy. Not only do you have the missed <laughs> element, you have the missed books, and then you have Kmart music. I mean, <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, the Kmart music is good stuff, too. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> I'm truly overwhelmed. I like actually like need a minute. Um, yeah, like Mist is really incredible, and what a strange moment in gaming where the hottest game is this really like lo-fi just generally speaking mellow experience where you're just bopping around a fantasy environment reading things um, and looking at beautiful landscapes i remember when i first played mist in my friend's basement as, as many of us do <laughs> for the first time um i was like what is this game there's like you, you, you i'm like so what do you do in this game and I, he couldn't explain to me like in a way that was satisf satisfactory for me, what you do in Mist, I was just like, so you just walk around? <laughs> you just pick up books? Okay. And But I was just mesmerized all the same because it is such a beautiful game, and I'm totally excited to try it on the Oculus. It seems like the perfect venue for the the new iteration of that. That's a that's a really cozy game to kick off our discussion. Yeah. And and another little thing I like about it is, is just the uh, ongoing thread in my life of documenting the heck out of everything, but... It was a game that required you to take notes outside of it. That's right. In the same way of a, a contemporaneous, you know, or a current game would just save to your log file and point you an arrow to the next thing to go to. And all the time, they're just showing you dates and diagrams and details and symbols. And you're supposed to write that stuff down. And I think it just helped me in life as a note taker to be, 
used to this idea of like, oh, I might need that later. I should store that somewhere. I'm flashing back to my notebook next to my Super Nintendo when I was playing Link to the Past just to kind of memorize the way to get through certain dungeons. And there are other things you just had to like remember and write down, which is, wow, what a throwback. (laughs) 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 Writing stuff down. Incredible. Yeah, Mist is to gaming what Enya is to music. It's just pure atmosphere and it really envelops you. It's a great name for for it too. I love the word mist because <laughs> i never played it but i just like like the sound of it mist do you want to just talk about mist well, for the rest of the show I feel well, like and, the and it's spelled with a y because of mystery and it's just it's so good i i I've, I've met i've had the great fortune and privilege in life i've met a ton of like semi-famous game creators throughout my life that i, I played the work growing up the only one i really couldn't help but fanboy ever was when i met the Rand miller and i was just like oh man recently there have been memes of like you know who you want to be and i'm always posting pictures of atris and oh i couldn't help it uh, he's just, it's just, it's all so good. And my mind is blown now. I never realized the connection between mist and mystery. I, yeah, yeah it was I was right in front of my face. I mean, also it's more trademarkable with a Y in it is, is the reality. Yeah. I'm sure some business head got involved. It works on so many <laughs> levels. Um, all right, let's dive into cozy gaming. Of course, we're a show that's all about coziness. And as we do, and many of our listeners, we play games and we enjoy them. So what is this intersection between gaming and coziness? We know games and play are vital tools for learning, social bonding, and of course they're fun. But in what ways can they be considered cozy? In other words, how can games make us feel comfort, relaxation, and generally all warm and tingly on the inside? So let's start discussing what that would look like. And I actually, to kind of define our terms here, I found this really wonderful article on Gamma Sutra called Designing Coziness by Tanya X. And she defines coziness in gaming as evoking the fantasy of safety, abundance, and softness, and defines safety as the risk and danger, physical, emotional, social, are minimized, abundance, lower level needs are met, and nothing is lacking or pressing, and softness, stimuli are gentle and comforting, reducing stress. I think these are actually really excellent guidelines for considering whether or not a game is cozy and I'd like to hear how your game choices, Jillian and Chris, kind of maybe fit into this criteria or how they might even go outside of it. So let's just start with talking about games and, and why we consider certain games cozy. Jillian, can you kick us off? What what games do you find cozy? Well, Chris, is actually inspired by a talk that Matt sent me where you were describing sort of how aspiring developers should go about designing their first games and you recommended starting off simple before trying out, you know, fancy tricks or uh, designs. And so I was researching cozy games that were, that kind of embody that simple mindset. So I found this game called, aptly called Cozy by Heather Mahan. I found it on this website called Itch-o? Itch-o? I'm not sure um, how to pronounce if you're familiar with that website. It, it, itch.io. Okay, yeah, itch.io. It's where all the home team games are on Itch.io. Itch.io is a big deal for us. Oh, we love them. Yeah, so um, <laughs> she designed Cozy, and it's a simple flat game, which is a term I never heard before. And that's a hand-drawn game with simple mechanics. And she created in two weeks while she was learning to develop using Unity. And she was inspired by the Danish concept of Huga, which we've talked about a lot on this show. And it was meant to explore what coziness means to her. So it's super simple. You have, you use the up and down arrow keys and this, the, I guess, what do you call it? Side keys? I know, I'm so untechnical. Side the arrow, arrow keys. keys. The arrow keys. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's really cute because it uses um, all of these cutouts and uh, it's a really simple, simple art. And you have this, it's like a, I don't know if you guys have, well, I don't know if you guys play this, but where you have those little cardboard dolls and you put clothes on them. This is what this. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, My wife did that for a grad school project somehow. I don't even remember, but yeah. Oh, cool. Sorry. Yeah. So basically <laughs> you're, you're moving this person around a super cozy house. It's, it's just everything that you would imagine your ideal cozy house has, you have a little cat. And so there's commands on the wall that says, uh, close all the windows of the house because it's snowing. So you close all the windows and then it says, put on um, a hat and then put on a comforter and a sweater and some socks and uh, use the up arrow key and then it, the, the clothes pop on you and, and it's just super easy to use. But what it makes it cozy to me is that it's such a small world. It feels incredibly safe. You're only moving back and forth. It's not um, you know, 3D or anything like that. So I like games that you can kind of hide away in 
And I just love the cut art and the collage aesthetic. That's super cute too. And I, and I love how it's, you know, she created trying to learn how to develop. That's neat too. Um, so I recommend it. You can donate to Heather to download the game. Um, but it is, it is free also, but of course it's nice, nice, nice to donate. So that was my first game I tried out. Yeah, I was looking at the website and it's just really beautiful artwork. I love the texture of the paper cutouts that are used for the game. Yeah, um, it's not a game that you necessarily go back to like, oh God, I got to play, play cozy and do the same thing over and over again. But I thought it was cool, the neat little details. So as you're going around and putting on different clothing items and snuggling up on the couch with your tea, uh, the cat moves around and it's very simple movements. But there's a little details that you could tell she really put the time and effort in to make it unique and special. Um, the second game I chose was to download on your iPhone. It's called Hungry Hearts Diner. And the game focuses on a grandmother who runs a small, quiet Japanese diner. In addition to typical cafe management mechanics like cooking food and serving it to customers, there's also a storyline and character's history that will slowly unfold. So there's something super cozy for me personally about owning a virtual place of business, especially when it's food related. There's something extremely comforting about serving people. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I like earning the the foods because every time you get money and you you know you get to try out a new recipe and then the conversations with the people who are dining in the restaurant are super funny and also really odd and strange. Which, yeah, yeah, they're kind of weird. Um, and the grammar is a little cranky, and she has a husband, and <laughs> you have all these interactions, and you do learn more and more about yourself, the grandmother, and the customers, and it's just funny and sweet and something that I actually have been enjoying and been doing all week <laughs> based on your recommendation i tried playing hungry hearts diner pretty much right before we started recording the show and the music is so beautiful and i really love just the look it, it has that softness right of the aesthetic that mm -hmm. can define a cozy game potentially and i agree i think there's something just so comforting about being in a warm place where people are eating and you're just helping them be happy and eat and that's the whole point of the game the only thing i wanted a little bit faster was that the conversations, the thing is, this is where like my own impatience, <laughs> it's definitely going to make you go at their pace. <laughs> the, yeah. That cozy game. You got to be ready to be calm and gentle because it wants to slowly tell its story and un unravel the narrative of this restaurant owner and her guests. And I think this is a really wonderful choice uh, for cozy game. And I, and I did find it to be very cozy. I only, the only thing I needed to change was my own mindset going into playing this game. Yeah, I also don't know what it says about me where I'm just like, my idea of coziness is serving others. <laughs> I have to look into that. But for a lot of for a lot of game players, and this is true, even if it's defeat the zombies, just the clarity of I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And it's so just so calming compared to the ambiguity of reality of there's a hundred things. Should I start doing this? Should I start doing that? Should I change career tracks in a game when it's so clear of like, go over there? do this. This person wants that. Oh, I can do that. Totally. Yes, please. Just let me. Uh, yeah. So I wonder how much of that might be buried in that serving others. This is just clarity of they're telling me what to do. I can do that. Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. And I think a big part of it too, is that the customers don't necessarily get angry. So if I don't serve them their um, rice ball immediately, they're not, you know, you know, sins are like <laughs> slamming their fists down on the table. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice, nice as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I just tried to pick games that were simple. And I think that's what made it cozy. Like you said, the objectives are super clear and easy. Um, this, this space is are very like aesthetically pleasing. I also tried out this cat cafe game where you own a cat cafe. It's a lot of cafe ownership, I guess, really strikes, strikes my fancy. Everyone has a fantasy of one day owning a cafe and just being a chill like coffee shop owner. Yeah, it helps definitely. you live that. Yeah, I really like also that these choices are independent games. Um, and I think that gives the game designers some freedom around sort of avoiding some of the things that larger games tend to fall into around, you know, maximizing user eyeballs on the screen and, and retention. Got to get them back every day. Got to psychologically rig this game. So they're constantly trying to figure out how they can get ahead. I found that some of the coziest games I've ever played have been by independent game developers who just have a real passion for a certain idea and they bring it to their audience um, through venues like IndieCade or um, in LA, there's the USC Games Expo where the USC Games uh, students show off their games. 
they're just really cozy stuff. Oftentimes it's just like, yeah, can you help feed this cat and pet it? <laughs> mm-hmm. But they do it in such an engaging way. It's like, it's usually more than that. There's like, and then a story unravels and it can be very deeply satisfying. I, I, for me, it's a, often a focus uh, less on how many hours am I sitting in front of this thing doing it? In which case, like you say, there's there's plenty of games that maybe I've spent 100 hours on, but maybe even ashamed of that. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's more about how long thereafter am I thinking about it? And that's where, uh, you know, I, th- I, th- I made some sort of post and I was like, oh, man, that what a throwback. And I'm like, how have you gone more than three days without thinking about Mist? Like, I'm still <laughs> thinking about it. It's not, it's not the hours I put into it. It's how long I'm thinking about it. And for some of these little indie games, it's something where, yeah, it might there might be five minutes of content. But gosh, you remember feeding that cat for a while. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, what about you? What when you think of a cozy game, what's the first thing that comes to mind aside from Mist? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So actually what I think about is often uh, mostly it's environments and I'm a big fan of, especially of games with nice nature environments, uh, good trees, good plants, stuff blows in the wind, nice sunlight coming through things, uh, which is kind of absurd for how much of an indoor human being I am. <laughs> Maybe it's, 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 it's fulfilling that need yeah. that is not being met adequately otherwise. But so an example of this, so the hunter call of the wild, which is a hunting game. I've been vegan for 18 years. People would not assume this is high on my list. But its nature simulation is just really good. Uh, and it's got a whole bunch of different settings and different weather conditions and different places around the world. They've got uh, voice actors and actresses from those regions who kind of speak some of the missions and stuff. And it's just a really pleasant kind of way to walk around in the hills and the trees. And every now and then the mission might be like, shoot this animal. And you're like, well, I mean, OK, I want to see where this mission's going. <laughs> Small and price to pay shoot. to walk around well, this beautiful exactly. environment. And- and, you know, I tell people, like, I don't shoot at real people either, but I do it in video games. And so the hunting thing, not a huge deal for me in the game, uh, but just worth it for that space with it's just got big open areas and nice cloud simulations. Big fan of that. Another version of that, sort of. So there's also a game called The Forest. And I raise a note for this because for some people, cozy games imply that there is nothing visually concerning, nothing stressful in there. Uh, forest would fail that test. It is meant to be a horror game. However, you can play it in peaceful mode, and then there's no monsters to fight. Uh, there are occasionally still, like I say, some some gross things around the island, so that's worth being aware of. But if you just turn it in peaceful mode, you kind of can just role-play Henry David Thoreau and build a log cabin by the <laughs> pond and cut down trees and feed yourself berries and and, and it, it do a little bit of crafting and stuff. And it's just a nice little peaceful thing as long as you don't go underground and look at all the monstrous stuff uh, <laughs> from, from the game's non-peaceful mode in the caves. But and, and I guess one other version of that, too, and again, this kind of the environments for me are the focuses, almost regardless of the mechanics, and granted on easy mode or the equivalent, since you don't want to have to stress against that. But so Hitman Trilogy recently has been reaching lots of people. Obviously, it is a game where you're a hitman. That is sort of the premise. However, they've basically taken this premise and used it as an excuse to put the player in all kinds of just beautiful places in the world, in Italy, in Colorado, in Russia, in Japan. And they've got great architecture. They've got just lively crowds in a way that right now especially is a is a need. We're not really getting met. And so those have been something interesting for me just to walk around and just enjoy those spaces, just admiring the architecture. And and really, it was the first time I played through it as well. I guess I got to do the missions and unlock the stuff. But now I just go back to it because they're just nice settings to visit and kind of don't care if I win or lose or quit halfway through it or don't save the progress because just there to enjoy it and soak it in and you know, I can respect the kind of the, the, the part of the way the industry can fund those artists and designers and architects is through attaching some action to it that can be kind of secondary or background for me. Yeah, going to what you said about your cozy games being for you about environments, there's something really cozy about finding, you know, a hidden waterfall or a place where you can hide that you felt like you discovered all on your own that's secret and special. I remember playing a lot, of, a lot of environment-based video games when I was a kid, and that was what I loved most about it. You know, exploring these beautiful areas that just felt like they were your own. Um, that's always really special to me. Minecraft, I think for a, a, several generations of kids now, has held on in part because it's been able to retain, because the worlds are randomly generated, that correct feeling for them, like, this is my waterfall. No mm-hmm. one else has ever seen this waterfall under this cliff edge, mm. exactly like the one I found and built my house next to. And I think it really helps capture that that call that that coziness of this is unique and it's undiscovered land. Definitely. Yeah, there's a security, like a calm ownership of place. Minecraft has that, and a lot of other games that are kind of just slower and let you build into the environment, like Animal Crossing, right? 
or a lot of these environmental games, or even going back to you were talking about Hitman is not the first uh, game series I think of when I think of coziness, <laughs> but you know, it reminds me of I used to just turn on Assassin's Creed uh, Black Flag just to yep. sail around the seven seas and go hop onto islands and explore. And I really didn't have any objective. I just thought it was so beautiful. And I would go, I mean, yes, I don't want to hunt whales. I don't want to fight great whites, but they're beautiful. It's amazing to have this experience in a game, mostly because you're in this really terrifyingly beautiful uh, element of nature. Yeah. And every now and then there are projects and I see these and I try to check them out and they, they always just kind of fall so short where they try to exist just as here's a pretty mountain, here's a pretty stream, here, let's go on a walk through Iceland or something. And no disrespect to those developers, but of course, again, it's just that at a different level, they can't hire as many world-class environment artists, world-class water animators, world-class texture artists, and everything else, uh, like the giant projects who basically, you know, you can almost think of like a Hollywood film where they, they take this big budget action story and attach it to, let's show some really cool locales and some really impressive costumes and some just great crafts by people around the world by getting them together and putting on a show for people. Yeah, I think another game series that does that really well is uh, the Legend of Zelda series, especially the 3D ones that were more recent. There are so many natural settings that you can just explore and really cozy villages you can visit. And it, speaking to that abundance aspect of coziness where there's lower level needs are met and you're not really lacking stuff, you get to a point in that game where you don't even really need to do anything anymore. You're just existing in the environment. And it's really nice just to explore it and take your time. And I think the Legend of Zelda series does that really well. So, something I've enjoyed seeing a, a, an increasing trend in games, and Minecraft certainly popularized a bit. No Man's Sky has got it, and uh, you can unlock it in the forest and so on, is a, is a creative mode. And it's where they essentially strip away you can't die. You can't run out of health. You don't need to replenish materials. You just walk around, exist, do what you want to do. And certainly it, it strikes a different chord for us, but it, it really, I think, makes it easier for more people to enjoy these kind of games and spaces in that way. Yeah, it reminds me of when I would just put that money cheat on SimCity. Yeah. <laughs> SimCity to me was an incredibly cozy game. It's actually not my pick, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoehorn it in there. It's an honorable mention. <laughs> um, because... First of all, all this amazing jazz music that you're enjoying while you're building your city with the mere objective of building a metropolis utopia. <laughs> and yeah, you have to deal with your really annoying city neighbors. Um, and there is a lot of trash to take out. But generally speaking, it really is just a lovely creative exercise to meditate on what it means to build a city, to live in a city. It makes you actually appreciate what, how cities operate more. Um, there was almost this renaissance of like low key um, learning games <laughs> around like the early 2000s between Age of Empires that taught me all about, you know, ancient civilizations and warfare and SimCity, which ta taught me all about, you know, how to run a city. I I'm basically I could be mayor. I don't want to brag about it. but <laughs> Roller coaster tycoon. If you give me uh, unlimited money, I'll be fine. <laughs> That's right. As long as you have the unlimited money, cheap. yeah. And if I can just delete things at will, um, if you can save load and and that kind of thing, it makes a big difference. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I would even actually enjoy when like the natural disasters would come because it would give me a little bit more to do, a little more challenge. Yeah. And that seemed that seemed you know it was natural, right? Well, I'm I'm reminded if there's an old Simpsons uh, where like the whole life had gotten really easy, they moved to some town where technology took care of everything itself. And Marge was just so bored, she, like, knocked her wine glass over to have something to do. It was like, oops, <laughs> it's to get cleaned. Uh, wine was not her valentine, evidently. No, yeah. apparently not. When I was thinking about this, I already kind of, like, gave away some games that I feel like are quietly, like, meditative. And I find those to be maybe the most cozy when it comes to video games. You just get to play it solo at your own pace. And nothing's really pressing. You just get to take your time and enjoy. But I really wanted to spotlight ways that multiplayer games can be cozy. Immediately, I thought of Dungeons & Dragons as being a really cozy game. So D&D, or Dungeons & Dragons, if you're not familiar, was created in 1974 by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, and it's a fantasy tabletop role-playing game published by Wizards of the Coast. And so to play, you and your friends each create your own character and embark on an imaginary adventure refereed by one person who fills the role of Dungeon Master, or DM, and the DM's job is to set up the story and play the role of the other characters or monsters, as it were, that your party encounters. But the storytelling itself 
is a collaboration between player and DM. And so typically, you know, you play indoors around a table, oftentimes with a map in front of you, you created by the DM, but now you can even use tools in this whole, you know, lockdown environment, like Roll20 to play remotely. Um, and they t- they're typically long, like your, your Dungeon Dragon session is going to take multiple sessions. And it's gotten more popular as a game because of the success of Stranger Things on Netflix. It's, got, it's kind of had this renaissance and explosion. And why I think it's cozy, there are three reasons why. The first is that it's, I think it's really welcoming as a game. And, and I think everyone has a different experience in multiplayer games because, and this is where it gets a little bit dicey, right? When you, in, when you introduce other people, because that's kind of a risk factor, right? They, they can, other people can make your game totally not cozy. <laughs> and so, but fortunately, I guess in my experience, the other people have made it even cozier. I've never not felt welcome at a D&D table to come in, invent a character and start playing and aside from getting acquainted with like the basic rules and like the player's handbook and stuff like that, and even over time, you don't have to know that right away. The rules are pretty flexible. You can kind of decide with your play group. And the goal is simply to have fun and create a story together. And another reason I think it's cozy, and I think maybe the reason it's coziest, is that it really allows you this personal personal expression of your your own self and creativity by the way that you adapt your personality and create your character. And you get to connect and bond with the people playing the game with you. You might not ever remember like the whatever game of Monopoly, I guess unless it's really miserable. Sometimes we all remember that one game of Monopoly that was truly the most heinous, long experience of our lives. But aside from that game, you normally don't remember that. But your D&D sessions, you'll always remember because you create these like really unique stories with your friends. And that's really cozy to me. I've never played, but it's I have piqued my interest. Yeah, it's really flexible. I think it's a little intimidating at first, or it can seem like really difficult. But it really is, honestly, in a nutshell, you are sitting around with your friends telling a collaborative story. Yes, you're rolling dice to decide the outcome of certain things. But most of the quote-unquote gameplay is you just making stuff up out of your head or the DM kind of following a campaign. And you decide how you interact with that environment yourself. So it's as stressful or cozy as your playgroup makes it. And so, again, that's like the one shortfall, right, is that if you have social anxiety or you're the people in that group just don't really have a cozy vibe, that can be difficult and make it not cozy. But I think provided that's the case and you feel comfortable with your friends, I think there's nothing like creating these really unique stories together as a group. Two things that stand out about D&D in particular for the coziness is is one of the things, so Celia Pierce is my advisor in grad school, and uh, one of the things she would talk about is how people navigating rules together is traditionally a part of board games, card games, pool, sports, uh, where the kids are negotiating, you know, is that, does this count? Was it on the line? Umpire is yelling as part of the, the sandlot and like the house rules for pool and stuff like this is part of the, the game experience we have socially that often really is lacking in digital games because we don't have that flexibility to navigate does and doesn't it count and sort of finding our social place in there. And in something like D&D, it's really the whole game is in a way navigating those. It's like, can I do this? And them kind of scratching their chin and being like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and like that, that's just such a different type of social interaction to bond over than through, you know, this this mechanical thing we're kind of pushing and pulling in the middle of us. But even then, and they mentioned kind of, you know, social anxiety and and D&D has kind of a history of players who maybe are a little bit more introverted, finding that they can find a social group there. And I think one of the things that games often give us, whether it's D&D or for that matter, same way some people use pool or watching the Super Bowl, is it gives us a thing to focus on besides directly one another, that there's this intensity to, hey, how are you? I'm looking in your eyes. Tell me about your day. What are you feeling right now? That very much can close us up. But if we're looking at and discussing the same thing in the middle of the table, well, you know, this isn't me. This is my character. Something's happening. I'm trying to understand this world. It gives us just another way to navigate with each other and our thoughts. Again, with maybe that less uh, intimate kind of intensity of just sitting there talking to people, which is hard for a lot of us. Yeah, it gives you that thing to negotiate, right? And it kind of also, if you are really into role playing, it lets you step outside yourself and into this character. You're not yourself, you are this thing. Like I my 
the character I play is a bramble block sticker bush, a gnome cleric <laughs> who I fashioned as a Marie Kondo-esque <laughs> proselytizer for joy who hands out pamphlets for Lyra, the goddess of joy. That's, you know, that's not me. I'm not that joyful of a person, but bramble block is. And <laughs> that's cute. It's a bit of a stretch because it's not the same. It's LARP rather than D&D. But if you familiar with Dark On, the documentary from 2006... Oh no! What's what's that about? Oh, so it's it's just as fascinating. Like the trailers up on YouTube, it's out there. But it's it's a story of LARPers who are people who you kind of think of D and D, but instead of on the board of the table, they're out there with foam swords oh, and okay, foam okay, shields okay. Yeah, and yes, having yes. big battles together. But they have these real great snippets from the interviews where someone's like, you know, at the day job, uh, I maybe I'm not really super proud of the line of work, or like I kind of like get pushed around by my boss or whatever. But like here in the evenings, I'm a general and like people respect me and I have control and the things I do have consequences. And and it's, it's just this kind of great exercise and outlet in our lives for trying on these different roles. And for somebody, it might be the opposite of it's a place where they take chances that they wouldn't in normal life. And it gives them so much more range for that. Absolutely. I think the ways that I think this is kind of what, the one thing I would say was missing from that coziness and games article was the way that connecting with other people can be very cozy and the way that games provide you that way to do that. And for people who may be socially anxious or not really, you know, it gives you that thing to bond over, right? Let's dive into cozy game design. So we talked about the games that we feel are cozy and the criteria and the reasons why we think they are. Um, But what about making games? How is that cozy and how can like how can we get involved in that in a way that would make maybe ourselves feel cozy? One of the things you've been is connecting with other people and the multiplayer aspect. And, and that's also where, for me, a lot of the coziness growing up was playing Bubble Bobble with my brother or playing <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade with somebody else. And it gave us this thing where they're, you know, we have to help each other out and we have each other's backs and I save them from something. And then there's one pizza in the street who needs it more based on our health. <laughs> and part of what I really enjoyed about making games with people is it's this continuous navigation of it's 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 really it's co-op. It's we have a shared objective. Our time and our experience and our skills and our strengths are all different. Uh, but almost like a Lord of the Rings party. Well, okay, well, we still have the same objective. How do we get there? And it's just this continuous navigation of we can, you know, draw different things, we can make music, we can bring our different talents together. And one of the things I've really enjoyed about making games, and especially with teams, is the degree to which it lets us celebrate our differences of sometimes we wind up kind of pigeonholed by our pathway and our career where we kind of get surrounded by people exactly like us in terms of their the way they see the world or the types of skills that they that they respect and i don't think anybody would consciously say this but it's almost like engineers look at other people being like those people just aren't good engineers and artists (laughs) will look at others and be like those people are like artists but not as good at art and what i love about the collaboration of game development is it makes us kind of have to appreciate ah, that person's strengths are different than mine. And we can really add a lot of value and and get a good result together by kind of having some compromises and navigating some of these trade-offs. And to me, that's just a, it's a, it's a nice place to be versus this kind of direct competition because it's also apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. We're all contributing different stuff. And I think that sometimes, I mean, I think one of the reasons I was a high school wrestler is because my brother played football. I didn't want to be compared. He was a great football player. I didn't want to be compared exactly the same way. And when we have a team that's cross-disciplinary and people who have different skills and interests, we're all bringing something different to the table. And, and it gets a little bit less competitive and a little bit more at just how do, how do we assemble our ragtag bunch of skills and, and make something. And the other thing that I also, uh, for cozy development, this is where you know a lot of people I work with are, are either pre-professional or in some cases, lifelong, happy, content to stay a hobbyist, where they just make a thing because they want to make a thing. And they, that, that's fun to them in the same way as some people play music or dance or write short stories because that's what they want to do. It's something where what we're making is almost secondary sometimes. And I I think about the example of, I don't know if anyone's had the chance to be visiting someone who has a model train set, but when someone shows you a model train set, you could usually tell they, they were super jazzed about making this. You might be pretty neutral about spending much time looking at their model train set. It was fun to make. Right. Like that Mm -hmm. was why it was made, because it was fun to make. And and there's this pride in in building it. But, you know, are you going to sell tickets to observe the train set? Probably not. But it's not the point. Right. It's because it was the the experience of constructing it, of getting it out of our minds. And for me, that's a a major part of when we're making games to enjoy it, as opposed to to sell, which is a valid pathway as well. But then it's got additional stresses around. Was this what a customer wants from me? Is this going to be able to monetize in a way? Is this market saturated? And we start to have to make a lot of forks in the road against 
what do I feel like doing? What seems fun to make? What, what's a skill I'm at the edge of or new to and could try my first model, my first song, my first bit of functionality in code? Going to back what you said about community, what I admire most about Home Team Game Dev is it's such a meaningful resource for aspiring game developers. I'm wondering, what's one cozy anecdote you have of the Home Team Game Dev community helping a developer to succeed? Sure, yeah. So uh, we had a guy several years ago, and uh, a lot of what we have is we have people, they maybe have some sort of strength or background, uh, but they're new to making games. And so this is a guy, he had a Stanford PhD, he was doing in optics and did research on lasers and stuff. Really smart guy, but never done games, wanted to get into educational game stuff. And he's an example one who we did have some career good stories from. He made some educational games in our group that he wouldn't have had the kind of collaborative group around him to produce with the same caliber and again, not professional quality, but better than any one person could alone of art of levels and puzzles being designed. And he made educational games about like using lasers to redirect lenses, to help people understand how uh, internal reflection works at a different angle to solve these puzzles. He made some games about geometry and congruency with solving these flipping shapes. And it's just really neat things he did. And then he got a job at MIT doing educational games for their lab. Super cool. And then in our group, he was like, well, I just need an outlet now because the day job is his educational games. So in our group, he made this uh, silly game where you're rolling Easter eggs down like a half pipe <laughs> trying to not crack them. And it gives us this is outlet for making games is, is, is still fun. It can be his outlet for the stuff that's not the not what he's getting paid to do. And and we've seen a number of stories, this too, of somebody who in our group will actually have a day job as we've gotten who's a producer at a mobile game studio, someone who's a game designer on a, a relatively large game company. But in here, they'll do picnic packing physics simulator. They'll do kind of a retro <laughs> arcade thing just because it's what they like to play when they were kids. And it's very much got the same kind of energy or vibe of, uh, we've, I, I guess, probably better captures. We've got a guy who's done music for Steam games for a number of years. This is his primary income in life. But then, you know, by the time you're doing it professionally, there's all these stresses around the producer calling you at three in the morning, wanting a different version and different cuts. And we got these certain deadlines and whatever. And instead of her here, he'll be like, hey, I just tried this sketch and just throw it over the wall. And we're just so grateful to have original music. We're like, yes, we're so happy. We're so grateful. We're going to use this. We're going to put it so many great places and uses, however he feels like doing it. And it just lets us kind of enjoy that that kind of early curve of uh, when we're doing something for fun. And and that, I think, has been an important thing for even people who are doing it as a career to enjoy it as just this is worth doing. Making games is a skill worth having. It's an activity that's just as enjoyable as any other creative thing we do. Uh, but it is a lot to do alone, which is why we try to uh, help people connect and do it more successfully together. Yeah, it's a safe space for people to step outside their comfort zones. And maybe they wouldn't be comfortable sharing that at work, but they can show a different side of themselves at Home Team Game Dev. Yeah, and, and, and that's a good distinction, too, of the a, a lot of what we kind of focus on is we encourage people to, to at least have some breadth of familiarity, to have tried doing sound effects, to have tried doing art, to have tried doing some code, even if it's not what their main strength or long-term interest is in, in part because, A, we might find we have a knack for it. We had someone who joined our group, discovered she loves doing game art, and then pursued that as a path in life. But, like, it's really hard if someplace is where your career is to, to get a chance mm -hmm. to do the thing that you're not already experienced at. Because, well, they got somebody else who's more experienced at it. They need you doing the thing you already know. Whereas we very much welcome and encourage, let's have code by artists and art by coders and music by sound. And just like people crossing those lines, people trying the first hand at writing to see, do they enjoy it? Are there things they like about it? And the other part I find this helps people do and, and keeping things cozy and appreciative and respectful is the humbling effect of, wow, that's really hard. Uh, until I tried it, I didn't really have an appreciation for the time it takes to do the writing that shows up in the game or to get modeling done at the level that we need for this, et cetera. And I think it helps people kind of have a respect for one another in terms of not just sort of black boxing music comes out of that person. Art comes out of that person over there. This person just makes the game work. And so some of the people who've gone on in careers as producers have said it kind of helped them to be the firewall on their team for someone else who'd lowball how long something's going to take. And they're like, no, no, I'm going to go to a check with him. Cause I think there's probably some devil in the details here <laughs> that you might be overlooking having not splashed around in it. And this person may not be in that same field, but having tried it and been, you know, baffled that this was harder than I expected. Let me double check because I think we might be oversimplifying this from our perspective as I think a healthy thing, you know, it's part of what I also love about just education in general, when everybody has to do some math and has to do some history and has to do some English and, 
there are folks who will always ask, you know, when am I going to use this? I mean, A, for game development. It's all going to show up in game development all the time. But also for anybody else, it's just it's nice to have a sense for not trivializing the hard work that historians do and artists do and mathematicians do and engineers do. And and I like that about things. Yeah, there's so many different elements of game design, whether that's art or sound or coding and writing so many creative efforts that you could that all go into creating that final product. And it's such a great environment to practice those hobbies in and have something that other people can enjoy and also do it in a casual way where you can start stretching yourself and trying things that you may not otherwise like maybe you paint as a hobby and you've maybe considered about, you know, doing art for games and you try that out. But then once you're on your team, you realize that you have an interest in coding and kind of hop over there. It's a way to kind of explore different interests on that you know, that point about the teamwork of creating games, how do you keep that teamwork cozy in terms of, because it's such a collaborative art form. How do you keep teams working in harmony with each other? Yeah. So, so I mean, a couple of major things that go into that are, are one is that we really have kind of what someone might consider flipped from the kind of the opposite of it. If you go to a, a job in a studio and sometimes people will be like, Hey, wait, hold on. Is this just like I'm paying to work at someone's studio? And it's super not. Uh, so if you're working for somebody, they tell you what to do. Your boss says, Hey, I need you to do this by this date. Uh, in this environment, the only thing anybody's doing ever is because they see a task that seems appealing to them. It's going to be what they want to learn or they want to show their portfolio or they want to try it or hand at doing, uh, even if, again, they might not be the most efficient or effective person for the task, that's not our goal. Uh, so they kind of just pick their own tasks and invent their own tasks. And occasionally we'll have a game and someone will be like, this game needs a tornado in it. And that person <laughs> will make the tornado effects and the sound and do the code and put the tornado in there. Didn't ask anybody's permission. Now there's a tornado. Awesome. Love to see it. Uh, and it's just this very kind of just playful environment. To Each time someone pitching and leading a project, they're really trying to do it to create opportunities for their peers to, hey, let's come practice on something new together. But the real point here is just to to have some some blades, or what would it be, to, to kind of like to whittle a blade on, right? You, we want something where you can kind of practice against it, try some things in a real context. And it's also where for somebody, because we have several projects going at once at any given time, maybe they've tried one type of game art and decide maybe that's not for them. Well, maybe they want to try full screen illustrations. They like to do animated sprites or, you know, retro with a smaller palette's helpful. Or maybe 3D modeling and animation but any given one of these, whether it's code, art, audio, and otherwise, there's so many different ways and approaches to do it. It's a chance to kind of stretch things out and stay flexible to the idea that, okay, I didn't like writing for this kind of game. Maybe I'll like writing for that kind of game. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care for the kind of programming that went into making a puzzle game. Maybe I'll actually kind of enjoy the programming that goes into a first-person action game. And it's an environment where they can kind of keep that window open and just keep exploring, keep trying stuff. And then ultimately, I mean, the other kind of thing that's non-trivially kind of on behind the scenes is that everybody in there has, they can turn to me for help. They can turn to, we have trainers and specializations they turn to for help. And it's sort of this guarantee of a lot of our learning works from someone will try a task. They'll say, I want to try to do it this week. About maybe two thirds of the week, figure out, I am not going to solve this on my own. Schedule time with me or one of our trainers. We help talk them through it. We're teaching them in the context of this thing you're trying to do, how you're trying to do it in a specific project. So it's not like they're trying to adapt something. They find some random, you know, hastily written code on the internet. And in the process, they they have certainty and confidence of I'm not going to hold up my team. I'm not going to be a liability to them. And that's something that holds a lot of people back from trying stuff of I don't want to say I can do it if I can't do it. And so we kind of build in that safety net so they can, which from everybody else has the benefit. Everyone else in their team is supported. So nobody else is going to hold up the whole team. And this is how we've been able to release every game we've started for the past five years. Think now about 110 of them wow. on time. Because everybody's got that safety net and fallback and fills things in adaptively as we go and works around whatever gets done. We're going to make the best of it. And we got people kind of looking after things. That's incredible. I know, Chris, that you have to go to your a, a gaming event right now. Yeah, <laughs> all good. Um, and, I, and I want to make sure you're free to do that. But before you go, um, can you just tell us if, if I'm listening and I'm interested in exploring game design as a hobby, how might I get involved with that or even home team game dev if that might be a place where I can get started? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things to point out as far as home team game dev, uh, you know, they can find out everything about that at home team game dev.com. That's something where they can read about how it works. Get There's a whole, there's a ton of information about commonly answered questions. We do have a bit of a bizarre, unusual approach to things. So it's some explain explanation on there. That said, a lot of people don't necessarily start there, right? They often, maybe they first try some jams and kind of the limit of what they can do in that time frame, or they may try to do some things alone. They figure out, okay, the limits of what they can do alone really will help them level up as they've kind of the limits of what they can do solo or in a short time frame on a jam, we help them build longer term projects with teams. Uh, if people just have kind of have a 
want a free entry point, uh, I have a new kind of email thing going on called gamedevtraining.com. Like it sounds, G-A-M-D-E-V training.com, short for game developer training. And this is a weekly email list. I just send out sort of common themes and stories I've found come up out of the thousands of hours now I've worked one on one with people on, okay, this clarified some confusion. This is something people wish they would have learned earlier. And I'm just trying to help more people kind of get started. So that kind of shares a bunch of those things as well as because I'm helping set up those open context, occasionally include some free materials that normally are part of our membership stuff. But it's like, hey, it's exercise book that would kind of fit this point I made. So here's a link to get it for free. Uh, that kind of stuff is built in there too. So uh, they want to find out about home team. They can't home team game dev.com for a lot of those stuff that email weekly emails. I'm sending out to game dev training.com or where to go. That's awesome. That's an incredible resource. It's, it's really cool that you've put that all together. Yeah. But what if I want to follow up with more of your missed point of view and your opinions about teenage Mutant Ninja turtle video games? Uh, that, <laughs> um, where, that's where, a good question. Where can I find you on the internet? <laughs> Sure. So I'm on the internet as uh, twitter.com slash Chris Delion, which, uh, you know, I'll be honest, that basically is a bit chaotic. I have a tendency to nuke my tweets periodically every few <laughs> days or so, because uh, it, it is a space where anything goes sometimes for better and for worse. Uh, I am on YouTube. I've got a uh, sizable following of YouTube folks. And that's, uh, I guess, the best way to find me. There's just literally going to type in Chris Delion. YouTube is going to get you there faster than the URLs. Gamkito LLC, my company name. Uh, but top result for YouTube, Christelion. And that's something where that channel is actually pretty general, even though it is occasionally intersex game development. A lot of them are a little bit more focused on productivity, like one of my audiobooks, or about just kind of mental well-being or life in general kind of stuff. It is it is Chris of Home Team Game Dev, not Chris about Home Team Game Dev <laughs> on that YouTube channel. And you also have a podcast, don't you? I do. Yeah, that's the Home Team Game Dev podcast. That's uh, hometeamgamedev.com slash podcast. We'll redirect it to it because otherwise it's just uh, tougher to describe Libsyn. But yeah, that's we've got over 150 episodes. And that specifically is people from industry and games and hobbyists, including lawyers, journalists, people who aren't just necessarily the game makers directly, call into our home team group uh, as guest speakers. Occasionally we do separate calls, usually as a live guest chat. We then adapt that audio for free for the podcast. And so we kind of think of that as like a sampler platter of any given person, we're basically asking, how'd you get into the line of work that you're in? What do you like about it? What advice do you have people starting out in that way? And our hope is that someone's going to hear any given one of those episodes and hear like, oh, I could see myself doing that. That really speaks to me. Or, or like, oh, my friend Jim would love this. And it's just trying to kind of provide some some vantage points into there's so many different things people do in games, so many different ways they found their way into doing it. And it's just trying to share a broad range of perspectives and experiences on that. Incredible. Well, thank you so thank much, Chris, you. for shining a light on both cozy games and on ways that we can make them together. Terrific. Thanks, you Thank y'all. you. Well, Chris may have left, but we are on to our bonus levels of the podcast, which include our wrap-up segments. We're going to share our soothing sounds, the, the songs that are making us feel cozy this week. And we even have a new segment for you coming up after that. But let's start with soothing sounds. Jillian, what sound, what song is making you feel cozy this week? Oh, finally, I got new music. Yeah. Yay. You, you beat me this week. I, I guess I got new music, but I digress. Tell us about your song. So I chose a song called Sparks by the Staves. They're a trio of, I was going to say they're a trio of three sisters. Duh. There's trio means three. <laughs> I love a trio of three. <laughs> trio of three. They're uh, all sisters. They're from London, but they did recently moved to Minnesota and they released their out new album good woman in february so right now it's out and sparks they said is the only love song on the album and although it's about something very sad they think of it as happy and triumphant it's about love but it's also about a magnified sense of how much you love them even though you're grieving there's a protective glow to it in many ways so for context they had a bunch of big life events before they recorded the album uh big breakup after five years, I think their mother died and they, one of them also gave birth to their first child. So it's like a lot of um, yeah. intense stuff going on, but their harmonizing is so beautiful and soothing that, like they said, even their, their sadness is gorgeous and, and very comforting. That sounds great. Let's listen to Sparks by the Staves.
a really pretty song. Yeah, it's really pretty. It's just cool that they're they're sisters and they can harmonize together so well. If you're into that kind of stuff, they did this really gorgeous cover of Sufjan Stevens' Chicago five. They did it five years ago, and mm-hmm. I think that highlights their talent really well. But yeah, Shindy is a really nice and pretty song. Yeah, and a beautiful message about loving someone, you know, and grieving their loss. I think that the part about wanting to hear their keys in the door is very touching. Yeah. My soothing sound is definitely soothing, and it's very appropriate for this episode in the sense that it is a game soundtrack. It is the track for Kaldheim, which is the stage on Magic Arena. So a little context. If you listen to the show, you know that I love to play Magic the Gathering, which is a trading card game. And they have a digital version of it called Magic Arena, which is just the same game online. And they have like, whenever they release a new expansion set of cards, they come out with a new like stage. So Call Time is set in this like Viking realm. And so all the cards are themed around Norse mythology. And the music for the stage is this beautiful medley of Norse inspired melodies and sounds. And it's very ethereal and atmospheric and I kind of get lost in it when I'm playing these matches where like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intensely trying to strategize, but I will find myself taking little breaks and just, just to kind of sit there and enjoy the music. And so I thought it would be a little bit appropriate to shut it out here um, in our soothing sound segment. It's not a track, unfortunately, that you can find on Spotify or anything. Uh, I tried in vain to search for the composer. If anyone knows who composes <laughs> the music for Magic Arena, please let me know. I want to you know, meet that person and, and tell them thank you for creating such a beautiful song. But let's listen to Kaldheim from Magic Arena so you can get a taste of it. has this very lord of the rings enya oh yeah definitely kind of vibe it's really just like you know pure fantasy music (laughs) and i love the deep bass in it it just kind of rumbles in your brain um it's really i I find it to be quite enjoyable outside of the game even like it's it's just good kind of study music it's music that also want to do yoga too like, yeah, it's it kind of sounds like meditation music. A it little does. Bit. Yeah, I definitely get lost into it. It's kind of that that music that you're creating a narrative in your head, like you're playing a movie in your head. Exactly. You're like they're going to war. Yeah. It's very it's very open. It wants to have a story to like. It's so expansive. You want to like tell a, a really epic tale of yeah um, battling squirrels and zombies as you would in the game. Well, it's a very cool choice and very appropriate for this topic. Please, if you know the, the composer <laughs> of Magic Arena tracks, <laughs> let me know. I'm going to start putting up missing signs all over LA. <laughs> um, all right. So we are really excited for this next segment. Um, we are calling it the Cozy Library. And the Cozy Library is now open. One of the beautiful things about being a podcast that celebrates the cozy mystery genre is that we get to highlight and give a platform for authors who are coming out with really wonderful sounding new books. But we only have so much time to have people come on as author interviews. And we wanted to find a space where we could really celebrate these new books and kind of give everyone a heads up like, hey, check out these cozy mysteries that are hitting bookshelves soon. So Julian and I created this cozy library segment to highlight those books. So Julian, take it away. What's on our shelf this week? The first book in our cozy library is Unmasked by Jennifer Cannon is published in October 2020. And I think this book is really cool because it's the first cozy mystery that I've seen that focuses exclusively on animals. So it's told from the perspective of a raccoon named Gary. And to give you a little taste of the book, I'll read the description. Meet Gary, a very average raccoon of average intelligence. His daily concerns are where to get his next snack and how to remain unnoticed. Then suddenly, with the help of his plucky friend Jenny, he is thrust into a world of risk and adventure. He must confront his past and his own securities as he decides his future. 
As they work to save the lives of those around him, they learn about themselves and who they are capable of becoming. So although we did a book that featured animals, Christmas cowbells, this is completely told from the perspective of Gary. And I think that's really neat. And Jennifer is a Canadian writer located near Niagara Falls. Her stories are rooted in life on her farm, with many of the stories being drawn from real life experiences. You can see some of the animals on her Instagram account, Gary Unmasked. And I took a look at the Instagram account. It's super cute. Uh, there's a recent photo of a little baby snakes, and I like baby snakes. <laughs> <laughs> it's giving me Redwall vibes. I'm getting a little bit of George Saunders, Fox 8 kind of thing going on. I love this concept. Yeah, so check that out. Another book on our shelf is A Caterer's Guide to Love and Murder, published in September 2020 by Jessica Thompson. Here's a quick synopsis of the book. As their wedded bliss starts to show signs of serious strain, Violet and her new husband, Jake, put their feelings aside to focus on catering a wedding that could make or break her career. When murder ruins the rehearsal dinner and her sister, Greta, the florist, becomes the prime suspect, Violet risks everything to clear her and still deliver the beautiful wedding her new friend deserves. But will she get there in time before the killer dishes out seconds? A fun fact about Jessica, who wrote this, is that when she discovered cozy mystery novels have recipes in them, she knew she found her niche and is an avid home chef and food science geek. We love our geeks here at yep. All Things Cozy. Jessica, you're right at home. She's won cooking competitions and been featured in um, uh, the online Taste of Home recipe collection. And she's from California originally, but is now in Austin, Texas. All about that Austin, Texas lifestyle and loves to smoke barbecue, shoot, ride, and wrangle. <laughs> <laughs> Before I forget, Jessica also has a new book coming out later this year. The exact date hasn't been released yet, but we'll update you when it does. It's called A Caterer's Guide to Holidays and Homicide. And if you want to follow Jessica, she's on Instagram at Jessica Author. Well, check them out. The library is closed for the time being, but we will be um, opening it back up with new tomes uh, that your eyes should be on soon. All right, let's wind down and calm ourselves with a candle review. I have the pleasure of burning the candle this week. Oh boy, have I ever found the best candle for this episode that could possibly have existed. And Jillian, I was shocked that this place is literally a five minute drive from my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just the stars aligned for today's episode. So I am burning the Library Scriptorium by Cantrip Candles in Los Angeles, California. It's designed to add scent ambiance to tabletop gaming. So let's say Mm. you are um, a dungeon master in Dungeons & Dragons, and you're setting up a campaign for your party, and they're exploring a sorcerer's ancient library, and you're like, oh, I just wish they could smell the library while we're playing and imagining that we're there. Look no further, you could get this candle, the library scriptorium, and it's meant to help your players smell like they're really there. And Cantrip Candles has a ton of other scents that are basically designed to immerse your players into whatever locale they're in in the game so they have scents that include dungeon depths which i actually got that one too and burned it a little i'll sneak in that one really quickly and it really does smell like in a pleasant way okay in a pleasant way a like a cave like a mountain cave it's like mossy has kind of a sweet almost cucumbery smell and it's like kind of stony and it has like that mineral scent and quality to it it's really interesting because these are designed for gaming, there are some scents that you wouldn't normally expect to have in a candle store. Like, you know, what does a den of thieves smell like? Well, you can get a, a candle that smells like that. But also, you know, if you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons, you find your, your players are in kind of expected locales too, like breweries and coffee shops, um, the forest, any, anything like that. And they also have scents for those lo- locations And of course, I chose the one, though, because we're big readers here and it just seemed appropriate. What does a book-scented candle smell like? (laughs) Even if you don't play games, you want to try this, right? The notes on this candle are of parchment, aged wood, and leather. And the first scent that hits you when you start burning it and it gets going is that leather. It's going to, it hits you first right away. But it it's balanced by truly there really I don't know how to describe it, but it is that like old book smell. <laughs> it's like kind of dry parchment um, scent. It's really satisfying. I really love it. And another kind of bonus here is because it's a gaming candle, 
they put like a, a D20, which is a dice that you roll in the game, inside their large candles that when you burn it down, you get a dice, <laughs> <laughs> a, a metal dice um, on the bottom of it waiting for you. So it's almost like a, um, a cereal box prize. Or like one of those crystals in, at the bottom of the candle and some. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I am really interested in this genre of gaming candle. It's new to me. I'm loving it. Um, Enthusiastic wick up for me. Yeah, I just think it's a cool concept in general to have a candle going with your games. I mean, it's about part of playing a game is the ambiance that you set up to enjoy it. I think it's, it's a really neat concept. And I think this is more of our scent profile that we like. Like you said, the mossiness, the stones. It's like a perfect candle for a castle or something. Yeah, well, that one is. That, that's Dungeon Depths. The library scriptorium is more like wood, leather, and parchment. Which is also Upper Alley. Absolutely. So, yeah, if you're interested in checking out this candle, it is cantripcandles.com. Um, they're a new company and I really hope they flourish because they're so close to me (laughs) and I really want to go back and get more candles. So check it out. It's a whole new thing. These gaming candles. I'm here for it. I definitely will try it out. Thanks for that, Rick. Before we go, we have our shout outs. Yep. And thank you to Claudia G for becoming a patron. Claudia also sent us a really sweet message through Patreon and it was heartwarming and we love the support. And if you do sign for Patreon, it's always cool to see those kind words. And if you want to support us, go to our Patreon page. We send out a cozy, all things cozy magnet and sticker and our Valentine's day cards are over and done, but you can always get in for next year. Um, so plan ahead. Yeah. Support the show by going to patreon.com slash all things cozy. You can also find us everywhere. You can find shows and stuff on social media. We are on Instagram at all things cozy podcast. We are on Facebook with the same handle. (laughs) So check us out and um, join the Cozy community. We also have a Facebook group, which is, again, shout out to all the members of that group. You are killing it with your stories that you're sharing there and just the slices of life you're giving us and and recommendations like Tara today with the the really cozy um, gaming idea for, you know, yeah, I do want a game that looks like a book. Thank you. It's like two things in one that I love. So... If you want stuff like that, join our Facebook group. We will be back in your ears soon with more coziness. Until next time, stay stay cozy. cozy.